Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much, John and James, for organizing this. Thank you all for coming. I look forward to uh, our discussion after we complete the talk. So my talk today is titled, Flourishing Through Friendship, Vices That Undermine and Virtues That Aid in Friendship. I propose that there's a connection between a person's notion of human flourishing and his or her notion of friendship. Inadequate views of human flourishing can lead to inadequate views of friendship. The lesson is that if we don't get flourishing right, we may not get friendship right either. But we should care about getting both right. I'll discuss some examples of mistaken accounts of flourishing and friendship, and then turn to what I take to be the best accounts of flourishing and friendship. Then I'll discuss how good friendships aid flourishing. And finally, I'll give extended practical advice on virtues to pursue and vices to avoid if you desire good friendships. It's evident that we all want a good life. For our purposes, let us think of the good life as the fulfilling or the flourishing life. It's the best human life. We all seek to live our best life. But it isn't obvious what such a life consists in, so we must think carefully about what it is and how to get it. <clears throat> To get us thinking, let's go back to ancient Greece and the philosophy of Aristotle. Aristotle was a 4th century philosopher who lived during the golden age of Greece. He was a student of Plato, who was the student of Socrates. He wrote learned treatises on a great number of subjects. These treatises were so, or treatises were so insightful and penetrating that some of them exert significant influence up to this day. Even if you think he's mistaken about the good life, <clears throat> he's worth paying attention to. In his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle observes that every person chooses an axe for an end or a goal. For example, eating dinner after this talk or during this talk may be an end or goal of yours. You'll have to finish, uh, you have to choose various means to reaching your goal of eating dinner, such as figuring out where to go, how to get there, and what to eat. If you're asked, why are you going to eat dinner? Answers you might give include, I enjoy eating, or I need energy, or I want to spend time with friends. So eating dinner isn't merely an end of yours. It's also a means to something else, such as gaining energy or spending time with friends. We pursue ends and means to those ends all the time. The ends we pursue are sometimes then also uh, means to further ends. So let me illustrate this by considering a series of questions. Suppose I ask you, why are you taking courses at William and Mary. You might say because you want a degree from here. I then could ask you, why do you want that degree? You might say, because you want a good job. I then ask, why uh, you want a good job? And you might say, so that you can support yourself and perhaps a family. And then I ask you, why you want that? At this point, you may get a little puzzled if you're like my students, you'll then give answers such as this. I want a good life. I want to be happy. And if I were to ask you, why do you want that? You would find that there's not another answer to give. And you'd say, I just want that. 
We've reached, there, the final end, the end of all your other ends. Aristotle calls this the chief good. Aristotle observes that there has to be something we treat as the final end, or chief good, something that is not a means to anything else, but is simply an end. If we didn't have a final end in mind, we would never begin anything. Furthermore, Aristotle thinks that human beings desire everything else for the sake of their final end. Aristotle says that we all agree in general about what the final end is. It's a good life, a flourishing life, or happiness, what he calls eudaimonia. Everyone desires this. Everyone desires to live his or her best life. If we all want happiness, then one of the most important questions we need to answer is, in what does happiness consist? What is the best life to live? If you ask different people the question, you'll likely get different answers. Furthermore, someone might change his answer depending on what's going on in his life. If he's sick, for example, he might think the answer is health. Aristotle considers different answers before offering his own. I'll mention two answers he rejects and then discuss their potential implications for how a person views friendship. The first answer to the question, what is a good life, is a life of enjoyment. On this view, the best life is one with the greatest sensory pleasure. For example, enjoying good food and drink, having stimulating experiences, Instagram-worthy vacations, etc. Aristotle acknowledges the goodness of pleasure or enjoyment, but he says that a life of sensory enjoyment is not enough for us. He says it's a life fit for cows, but not human beings. What does he mean? If we were to ask what makes for a happy cow, we'd probably say that the best cow life requires food, drink, shelter, the comforting presence of other cows, and making and feeding baby cows. That's enough for a cow. But a human being could have ready access to the pleasures of food, drink, shelter, society, and sex, and still be unhappy and unfulfilled. While these pleasures have their place, and our sensory pleasures are greater in scope than a cow's, Aristotle claims that to live for sensory pleasure alone is to live as if the cow's best life is our own. But we're not cows, and their good life is not ours. Consider how we might view friends if we held this view. Suppose we lived for sensory enjoyment, and we ordered everything we did to gain the most enjoyment we could. On this view, it would be tempting to view friends as playing an important role in our happiness through being enjoyable to us. We might value them merely as a means to the joy they bring us in our lives. If they cease to bring joy to us, we might move on to find other, more enjoyable friends. But I submit this is a shallow form of friendship that will, like the vision of happiness as enjoyment, leave us unfulfilled and not the kind of people that would be good friends. Of course, it's a good thing to enjoy your friends, but we shouldn't care about our friends merely because they bring us pleasure or enjoyment. A second account of the good life holds that the best life is being wealthy. Aristotle recognizes the goodness of wealth, but he says that wealth cannot be the final end for wealth is clearly desired as a means to something else. People want wealth to buy houses, cars, clothes, entertainment, travel, education, status, power, etc. Wealth is not desired for its own sake or as a final end. Therefore, it cannot be what happiness ultimately consists in. This may strike you as a surprise given it appears that many people order their life around accumulating wealth. 
Some wealth or another means of access to the goods it can buy is necessary for a good life. We need food, clothes, and shelter to survive. We need a suitable education to thrive. Usually, money is the means of securing these things. We do rely on money to some extent. But the best life requires much more than having the money to meet those basic needs, as we can see in the lives of unhappy, wealthy people. We cannot treat money, which is a means to certain ends, as the final end of our life. How might we view friends on this view? If our, life, or if our lives were ordered around accumulating money, or what money can buy, we would be tempted to view our friends as useful to us in advancing our careers and securing greater wealth. We might value them as merely a means to the wealth they help us to secure. But I submit this is a shallow form of friendship too. It will, like the view that wealth will make us happy, leave us personally and socially unfulfilled, and not the kind of people that would be good friends. That's not to say that our friends should never be useful to us, but we shouldn't care about our friends merely because they're useful to us in getting what we want. Many people might live with a combination of these two views. They take sensory pleasure to be the highest good and wealth as the most important means to achieving a life of sensory pleasure, and they only pursue friendships of pleasure and usefulness. Let's turn to what Aristotle claims about flourishing and about good friendships. What is flourishing for Aristotle? Aristotle understands the good of something to be to depend on the kind of thing it is. So the good of a human being will depend on what a human being is, the good of a cow will depend on what a cow is, and the good of a tomato will depend on what a tomato is. The good of a human being or simply the good of the human being will differ from the good of a cow or a tomato. A good tomato life is to grow, bear fruit, ripen, and reproduce itself via its seeds. In our garden, it's also good for my kids to enjoy picking and eating it. In order to understand the question, what is the good human life? Aristotle's first step is to ask, what is a human being? For he reasons, if we can figure out what a human being is, then we'll be able to figure out what makes a good human being and what makes a good human life. In summary, Aristotle's view is that the correct answer to the question about human flourishing depends on what makes for a good human life. And he claims that human beings flourish when they perform their characteristic activity well. For example, playing the guitar is the characteristic activity of a guitar player. To play the guitar well is to flourish or to be good as a guitar player. What is the characteristic activity of a human being? Aristotle argues that it's the activity of using our reason. By reason, we know or we come to know important truths and make choices that transcend our instincts. Our reason is what makes us distinct from the other animals despite their impressive cognitive powers. Our reason is what brings a governing unity to the use of our other capacities and to our lives. We typically identify more with reason and choice based on reason than on immediate desire and emotion. Recall the last time you broke a diet out of an impulsive de decision. If you berated yourself afterward, wasn't it because you identify more with your deliberate rational choice than with your impulsive desire? If the activity of reason is the human characteristic activity, then we flourish as human beings when we use our reason well. Using our reason well includes understanding things, making good choices, and fostering reasonable emotional responses regarding the situations and people we encounter and the actions we pursue. Aristotle calls these activities in accord with reason. 
Aristotle calls the habits that dispose us to activities in accord with reasons virtues. Virtues are good habits of thinking, choosing, and emotionally responding that are essential to human flourishing. They make us able to do reasonable things reliably, easily, and with pleasure, or at least without pain. Aristotle argues that a good life is characterized by such virtuous activity and that this will be done with friends. So, what is friendship? Friends are vital for our flourishing because we are social animals who need each other for good lives. Aristotle's basic notion of friendship is that it's a relationship characterized by mutual goodwill of which both parties are aware that's based on some likeness between them. He distinguishes three kinds of friendship. The first are friendships of utility, which are based on mutual benefit. The second are friendships of pleasure, which are based on mutual pleasure. The third are complete or virtuous friendships, which are based on mutual love for the other for his or her own sake, that is, for his character or who he or she is as a person. In this friendship, there is a likeness of character between the friends. Aristotle notes some similarities and differences between uh, the three kinds of friendship. Friendships of pleasure or utility are not necessarily bad, but they are incomplete friendships. The good and the bad have them. They're not necessarily long-lasting. They're quick and easy to form and to dissolve. They're possible with many. By contrast, only the good have complete friendships. Complete friendships are long-lasting. They're slower and more difficult to form and dissolve. They're rare and possible only with a few. In summary, the fullest and most complete kind of friends are those we care about for their own sake, and not merely because they are pleasant or useful to us. We say to these friends, I love you for who you are as a person, not merely because I enjoy doing things with you or because our relationship is mutually beneficial. It's not that friends cannot also be pleasing and useful to us, but these are not the basis for complete friendships. Such friendships depend on both people pursuing a genuinely good life and forming a character growing in virtue. Such friends want to be with each other and spend time together. I'll call these good friends. It's the good friend who will sacrifice his own pleasure or benefit for the sake of his friend. Aristotle writes that for his friend, a good friend will sacrifice money, honors, and in general the goods for which people compete, procuring for himself what is noble. In fact, she's even willing to die for her friend. If we want to summarize Aristotle's view of flourishing, or of living a good life or happiness, it's that flourishing is a life characterized by virtuous activity with friends. Notice that the account of human flourishing built on virtuous activity fits well with the account of human friendship based on love for the other person's goodness as a person. Fundamentally, what we are living for makes a difference for the content and direction of our character. If my life is oriented toward pursuing what is genuinely good in itself, then I will be both attracted to and attractive to those who are also pursuing what is good. What we are ultimately living for shapes the person we become. The person we are determine, the persons we are determines what kind of friends we will be and what kind of friends we will attract. Good friends help us to become good. I'll mention some of the benefits of good friends here and then I'll discuss some of them in greater detail when I turn to the virtues that foster friendship and the vices that undermine friendship. 
Aristotle um, discusses some of these benefits, and a scholar named Paul Waddell discusses more. So I'm drawing from both of them, and I'll give you a list of some of the benefits of friendship. The first is to grow in love. The second is self-knowledge, especially one's strengths and weaknesses. The third benefit of friendship, encouragement in pursuit of the good life, and especially by helping us to keep our eye on the goal we are living for and by accompanying us on the journey. The fourth, companionship during the storms and the triumphs of life. The fifth, avoidance of mistakes, especially when we are young. The sixth, increasing our capacity to think and act in doing great and noble deeds, especially in middle age. And the seventh, finishing work we've begun that we cannot finish, especially when we are old. In the next section, I will focus on growth and love, knowing ourselves, and, since all of you are young, avoiding mistakes. I'll now bring this section of the talk to a close with some remarks about happiness and unhappiness. Aristotle's view of happiness has implications for a bad life, which we should seek to avoid. A bad life is a life characterized by vicious activity or the habitual failure to use reason well, to choose well, and to become and be the kind of person that can be a good friend. Aristotle argues that his account explains what is plausible in the other accounts of happiness while avoiding their weaknesses. He claims his account will lead to an overall enjoyable life, for example, although enjoyment is not its goal. For a person who gains pleasure from doing virtuous activity, who habitually, who habitually performs virtuous activity and so is free from significant internal psychological conflict, will overall have an enjoyable life. He claims that virtuous activity may require some measure of wealth, depending on the circumstances. For example, practicing the virtue of generosity through hosting a dinner party for friends requires you to possess wealth beyond meeting your basic needs. Finally, Aristotle's account is applicable to many different states of life. A life characterized by virtuous activity could be lived out as a business person, a stay-at-home parent, an author, a musician, an engineer, a computer scientist, and so on. All could lead such a life. The wealthy and the unwealthy could walk such a path. Those with power and public influence and those without could do so. They all must live a life of virtuous activity with friends, but the circumstances in which those virtues are exercised will differ according to the individual. For the next part of the talk on virtues and vices related to friendship, we'll include now St. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval philosopher and theologian. For Aristotle and Aquinas, Happiness goes beyond pleasure and wealth, as well as health and honor. It must be a life that befits and fulfills our nature as rational and social beings. But for Aquinas, unlike Aristotle, virtuous activity with friends in this life alone cannot perfectly fulfill us. We will still have troubles and face disappointment and death here. There will always be some reasonable desires left unfulfilled, even in the best of lives here. If we are to be Perfectly fulfilled, he says, we must enjoy everlasting and perfect virtuous activity with friends where God is the first and best friend that we know and love forever in eternity. The virtue most needed for friendship is love. Aristotle writes, since friendship consists more in loving than being loved, it appears that loving is the virtue of friends. To be a good friend, you must love the other person for his or her own sake rather than simply because they're pleasant or useful to you. In the Christian tradition, to love a person for his own sake is called 
charity. Charity centrally refers to the love for God for his own sake that God gives by grace. Hence, Aquinas writes, it's evident that charity is the friendship of man for God. This love overflows into the love of neighbor. For Aquinas to love someone is to will their good. This is sometimes called benevolence, which means to will the good. So for our purposes, we'll think of charity as the disposition to will the good of another for his or her own sake. Notice that this makes an act of charity a voluntary act. It's not the emotion of love, although that may accompany it. In a complete friendship, there's mutual attraction to the other due to their good character. Loving a person for the kind of person they are helps us to grow in charity by helping us to focus on someone other than ourselves through meeting the demands of the friendship and through personal sacrifice for the sake of the friend. To grow in charity, we must also expand the scope of our charity to include not just those we find pleasant or useful, but everyone. Every human being, as a human being, deserves basic charity. To will the highest good for a person is to will their ultimate flourishing. This is the will that they too would have, li- would have a life of virtuous activity. Such a will is necessary for complete friendship, but we are also to will the good of those who are not our friends. Now let's look at two vices that are contrary to charity. What's a vice? Vices are unfulfilling habits that contribute to unhappiness. Vices are formed by repeated bad choices, such as choosing something wrong, failing to do what is right, failing to correct some unreasonable emotional response, and so on. Vice makes it easier for us to make bad choices and respond poorly to situations, contributes to self-deception, and so undermines our own good and the good of others. The vice we'll first focus on that undermines being a good friend is called spiritual apathy. It's also called sloth or sloth. Apathy means without pathos or to lack love or concern. In his On Evil, Thomas Aquinas defines spiritual apathy as a habit of sadness or pain at a spiritual and interior good. Let's unpack this definition. This sadness or pain is not simply emotional, but involves a tendency to deliberately withdraw from such goods when one should not. Spiritual and interior goods in contrast with material goods, are not seen, tasted, or touched. They are goods such as knowledge and friendship. You can see the effects of knowledge and friendship, but you can't see the knowledge itself, although you can see the book. Nor can you see the friendship itself, although you can see the friend. Knowledge and love for a friend are interior to us. Spiritual apathy is a disordered avoidance of and sadness at such goods due to a lack of proper love for them. Since spiritual goods such as knowledge and friendship are crucial to happiness, spiritual apathy is a significant cause of unhappiness. In her excellent book, book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung calls spiritual apathy resistance to the demands of love. There can be various sorts of spiritual apathy, but Aquinas focuses on one kind of apathy, apathy about love for God, whose friendship is the ultimate source of happiness. I'm going to focus uh, my discussion on apathy about love for human friends. The spiritually apathetic person is saddened by and withdraws from his love for a friend or what that love requires. He doesn't care enough for the friendship. But how could we be saddened at the love of a friend? Are not friends a source of joy instead of sadness? Are we not social beings who need human relationships to thrive? A person is saddened because the friendship is seen as bad in some way. 
It's seen as an impediment to or getting in the way of something else that's desired. When I'm apathetic about my love for a friend, it may be because I see that what love requires of me gets in the way of my own comfort or plans or desires, which I care about more, in this case, than my friendship. The apathetic person is saddened because she thinks the friendship imposes a burden on her. For example, a love for a spouse, love for a spouse requires commitment and willingness to change. But if a man doesn't love his spouse enough, then that commitment and change will be burdensome and so bring a certain sadness or even resentment. The apathetic are saddened primarily due to a lack of love, and not simply because they are averse to the work it requires. They fail to cut, cultivate love as they ought. When Aquinas speaks of sadness, he has in mind more than just the emotion of sadness. Sadness also refers to a freely willed withdrawal from something. It manifests itself as a desire and choice to avoid what love requires. This choice is to withdraw from love or the choice not to foster that love are choices for which I'm responsible and contribute to the emotions of sadness we've discussed. So how does apathy contribute to unhappiness? Spiritual apathy is unreasonable and unfulfilling because when I'm spiritually apathetic, I'm failing to do what love or duty requires and treating something less important as more important than it really is. For example, suppose my love for my friend requires sacrificing my comfort. Suppose I'm comfortable in doing something pleasant, um, but my friend calls and really needs help. And suppose there isn't a good reason for me not to help. What's holding me back is that I don't want to sacrifice my comfort for the friendship. I'm apathetic if I fail to love my friend by sacrificing my pleasure and comfort for him. Acting out of love for my friend was the greater spiritual good, and I was avoiding that I was avoided by refusing to help him. Even if I do help, spiritually apathy can make me sluggish to do what love requires. And clearly this is not conducive to being a good friend. Aristotle says that humans cannot stay long in a state of sadness. Since apathy makes us sad, we will either seek to escape from that which makes us sad, or distract ourselves from thinking about it with something pleasant. These two responses are manifested by laziness and busyness. We usually associate spiritual apathy with laziness, with giving up in despair and doing nothing. The typical image of the slothful human being is the couch potato watching TV. But we can also seek to escape the source of our sadness by distracting ourselves with many activities. We can rush about doing many things and feel some measure of satisfaction at our supposed productivity. But this only avoids the more important issue we should face and increases our apathy. Good friendships persist because the friends are willing to face the hard things friendships requires them to face. Our avoidance behavior can make spiritual apathy a gateway vice to other vices like greed, gluttony, and lust. Why those vices? Because they each involve things we find very pleasant. Money, food, and sex. And we seek pleasure to remedy sadness. If by my apathetic behavior, I avoid spiritual goods like my friendships with God and others because they require that I make some sacrifice, and I instead seek pleasure to diminish my sadness, I'll find over time that even the pleasures I seek as an escape become diminished. And this is because I'm using the pleasant thing to escape rather than wholeheartedly enjoying it. I want to make a qualification at this point. Sometimes there are actions that love requires that we set aside for a time. 
because we don't have the energy or other resources needed to address them well. That's not apathy, but just good sense. It's reasonable to wait for the right time to face difficult things. In summary, spiritual apathy is particularly damaging to friendship because if I avoid what love requires, I become resistant to making sacrifice and to changing myself, which good friendships require. I can even become angry at those who call me to do good because that reminder renews my sadness. But being a good friend and developing good friendships is crucial to happiness, so we should work against spiritual apathy. How can we do that? How can we work against it? First, recognize that friendships are crucial to happiness and that to be a good friend, one must sometimes sacrifice one's comfort and pleasure for the good of the friend. Deliberately cultivate love in yourself for your friends when you see it's lacking. Even if you're not feeling it, doing the loving thing over time will help. The 4th century monk Evagrius in the Benedictine monastic tradition recommends practicing stabilitas loci, or stability of play. This means that I stay put. I don't try to escape. I face the issue that's causing my sadness and resolve it to the best of my ability. But it's very easy to escape today. We have a highly mobile society and an almost infinite number of amusements available at our fingertips through our devices. Sometimes it's reasonable to move on, but we should resist doing so when we're really running from what love calls us to do. This requires perseverance, which is another remedy for apathy. Evagrius writes in his Eight Thoughts that perseverance is the cure for apathy, along with the execution of all tasks with great attention. It's not enough to stay put, a person must stay the course and resolutely attend to the tasks that will foster the love that is lacking. In these ways, we can grow to be more loving and better friends. The next vice that undermines friendship is envy, which is contrary to charity. What is envy? Aquinas defines envy as sadness at another's good, insofar as the good of another is seen as an impediment to one's own excellence. Let's unpack this definition. Sadness here, like in spiritual apathy, can refer to two different things. On the one hand, it can refer to the free, deliberate withdrawing from willing someone's good. On the other hand, sadness can refer to simply the emotional distress. How can we be sad over another's good? In the case of envy, we perceive the truly good thing that causes sadness to be something bad. We're distressed when we perceive that someone else is getting some good thing and that diminishes our own excellence. Because we treat the other's good as something that takes away our own good, we treat what is good for them as bad for us. Hence, in envy, the other's good makes me sad. Consider an example. Suppose my friend gets a better grade than me on a test, and I feel saddened at her having gotten that grade. I begin to wish she hadn't got that grade, but instead that she'd gotten a lower grade than me. That's envy. What's going on? I'm upset because she got a higher grade than me. Perhaps her getting the grade makes me feel inferior to her. Perhaps I just really wanted to be at the top of the class and she beat me to it. Either way, her higher score is the source of my distress, and so I begin to wish that she had never got that grade, even though it was good for her to do so. I may even begin to make excuses for why I didn't score higher, or attribute her good grade to luck when it was really the result of her hard work. The genuine good of another, for example, her success, accomplishments, maturation, etc., contributes to her flourishing. And if I love her, or at least have a basic goodwill toward her, 
I should rejoice in her good, or at least not be pained by it, and wish she didn't have it. But envy is contrary to this goodwill, which is why it's contrary to charity. When I envy another person, I withdraw from her good rather than willing it. I'm paid and distressed by her having the good and wish she did it. Before unpacking the negative effects of this distress, it's worth distinguishing envy from something that is good but seems like envy. Suppose a friend works hard over the summer and saves up enough money to go on a trip. And he posts his adventures on social media, and when you see them, you have mixed a mixed reaction. On the one hand, you're glad that he had the trip, but on the other hand, you feel sad that you hadn't been on such a great trip. Is that envy? Perhaps not. Aquinas, following Aristotle, distinguishes envy from something that looks like it called zeal. Aquinas writes that zeal is when persons are saddened at the fact that they themselves do not have good things that their neighbor does. The zealous person then seeks to imitate the others so that he can attain the good that they, that they, they got. So I may work hard to save up so I can go on a trip like my friend. Zeal then is different from envy for the envious person is saddened at the fact that their neighbor has the good thing that they themselves don't have. So that difference is subtle. Zeal is sadness that I lack a good another has without sadness that the other has it. But in contrast, envy is sadness that the other has it and it will make me glad if the other loses it. Zeal is consistent with loving the other and willing them to have the good, but envy is inconsistent with loving the other for the envious wishes the other didn't have the good. So what are some bad effects of envy? The first, of course, is that it undermines charity. Charity toward others requires that we will their good. It's a failure of benevolence to respond negatively to the real good of another, but that's exactly what happens in envy. For those who have played sports, think of when you were young and you were taught good sportsmanship. I recall at the end of soccer matches going out to shake the hands of the opposing team and telling them good game. The poor sport was the one who sulked and fumed over a loss and wouldn't shake the hands of the other team. The poor sport refused to will the good of the other. The poor sport was in the grip of envy. Envy makes it harder to love the friend you envy and harder to be a good friend. It's difficult to be around people who are sources of sadness to you. And it's difficult to have a friendship that's marked by a need to be superior to your friend. Envy also begets offspring such as gossip and detraction. The envious may attempt to tear down the person envied and show she's not as good as others think. The envious gossips when he disparages the one he envies in a secret or disguised way. He tears them down openly by detraction. The envious does this because he thinks tearing down the others will remedy his sadness. Unfortunately, envy doesn't stop there. It can degenerate into hatred for the other person. To hate the other is to wish for, their other, for the other's misfortune. Absolutely. For en example, envy may start in an athlete because someone else fairly beats him for a starting spot on the team. Hate results when he not only wishes that the other wouldn't have that spot, but when he wishes that bad things would happen to the other person altogether. This leads the envier to exult or rejoice at the other's adversity. Say if the other seems to get a serious injury or something really bad happens to him, or to, to distress if the envied person prospers. Say if further examination by the doctor reveals the injury isn't serious, or if something really good happens to him. The hateful person is worse than the envious because they are totally set against 
the other's good, rather than in just one way. So how can we avoid envy or work against it? Envy stems from a comparative sense of self-value or self-esteem, or an excessive desire to be the best, or both. To combat envy, we have to disconnect our self-esteem and self-value from a winning comparison with other people. A comparative sense of self-value is easy to come by in our culture. We see that material rewards often go to the winners. And if we don't have a clear sense for what does give us value, we can take false consolation in the thought that at least we're better than the next guy. A more robust sense of self-esteem will be rooted in one's own intrinsic value stemming from one's nature, from the unique traits and gifts one's received, and from being loved by God. These sources of value don't depend on winning comparisons with others. A second remedy is to pay attention to and cultivate concern for goods that we share with others rather than competitive goods. For example, when I share knowledge or experience of beauty with somebody, I don't lose any of that knowledge or experience. I can't envy a person if her having a good doesn't diminish my um, having it too. A final remedy is to practice good zeal. Focus on what you can do to become better and try to love the one you've tempted you're tempted to envy and imitate them so that you can be worthy of the good that he or she has. Okay, I'll conclude this talk with a discussion of another virtue, an application of the virtue of prudence, which is wisdom about what's to be done. In particular, I want to focus on how a friend is both loving and wise and helping her friend to know himself and to avoid mistakes. Aquinas discusses fraternal correction or friendly reproof in which we confront our friend about something they have already done or something they are planning to do that is wrong. A true friend loves us for our own sake and wants us to flourish. But wrong actions always wound us and detract from our flourishing. So a good friend will help us in this way at times. He or she will not always be on the lookout for sin and pry into other people's lives, but he or she will at the proper times correct the friend for love demands that we help our friends to flourish. But how, you do, how do you do this well without being obnoxious or just unsuccessful? Let's learn from Aquinas' wise advice in this matter from the Sula Theologiae. Fraternal correction or friendly reproof is to correct a friend's fault out of charity, that is, love for the person and for that person's own good. And to do so properly, we've got to meet five conditions. First, we have to have good judgment about the fault. Do I see clearly? I should not seek to correct a friend on the basis of suspicion, but we must clearly understand the issue at hand. Sometimes we have to remove a log from our own eye before we can see the speck in our friends. Second, we must be motivated by love for the friend and his flourishing. Am I really doing this out of love? Or am I doing it from pride or from some ulterior motive? Third, we should reasonably believe that the friend trusts us. In other words, the friend must believe that I have good judgment and that I'm motivated by love for her or for him. Sometimes our friends trust us in some areas, but not in others. Is this one in which my friend trusts me? Why does this matter? If my friend does not trust me, I will likely not succeed in correcting my friend and may make my friend worse and harm the friendship. Similarly, if I've corrected them too frequently already, the friends may be unwilling to listen again. 
Such failures conflict with the loving motivation that impels the correction. I want him to improve, not get worse. Fourth, we must not only correct when our friend, we must only correct our friend when he or she is in a place to receive it. Usually we should not try to correct a friend when they're exhausted, depressed, angry, or in a mood that makes them unlikely to receive it. Furthermore, we should avoid correcting in public or in front of other people. The virtues of justice and love require us to be sensitive about the reputation of others and to protect that important good out of love for them. That does not mean that there are not cases where a public correction might be necessary because of the urgency of the situation, but these are not typical. In summary, we must ask then, are these the right conditions for the correcting? And then finally, in light of these considerations, we must determine whether we have reasonable hope that our friend will receive the correction in these circumstances, rather than reject it, injure our friendship, or become worse. If I think it likely, it will likely make them worse, then love bids me to refrain and not do it. This is why prudence is needed, and love is absolutely essential for correcting a friend. As should be clear, a good friend helps the friend to know himself, including his faults. But this is not motivated by judgmentalism, but by love for the friend. Such friends together will flourish because they will charitably help each other to pursue a more fulfilling life and become partners in a pursuit of happiness that benefits them both. We should all seek to avoid spiritual apathy and envy and grow in charity and prudence so that through friendships, we can flourish together. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.